This week, apple juice to treat gastroenteritis in children, and long-term outcomes in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm your host. I am a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I am joined by Janice Kwan, who is an internist at the Sinai Health System in Toronto. Hey, Janice, how's it going? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here, my friend. And you are talking about something a little bit off the wall compared to what we uh, usually do. I mean, it it's still a randomized control trial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So I suppose it's not that off the wall, but we're talking a little bit outside of our comfort zone. You're going to talk to me about uh, a pediatric topic. Exactly. I, I chose it because it's on one of my favorite topics, which is food, um, but also because I thought that it might be applicable to our, our listeners, uh, primarily those in primary care and the pediatric world, since we don't often talk about this patient population. Totally agree. So tell me about this study, which is about the use of apple juice as a rehydration therapy in uh, children with gastroenteritis. Right, so the paper that I chose to talk about is by Friedman and colleagues, published in JAMA, and uh, the title is Effective Dilute Apple Juice and Preferred Fluids Versus Electrolyte Maintenance Solution on Treatment Failure Among Children with Mild Gastroenteritis. And what they found is that among these children with mild gastro and minimal dehydration, initial oral hydration with dilute apple juice followed by their fluid of choice compared with those taking electrolyte maintenance solution resulted in fewer treatment failures. Okay, so uh, Janice, tell me what we knew about treating gastroenteritis uh, before this study and why the study was done. Well, not surprisingly, we know that gastroenteritis is a very common disease in both the developed and developing world, with an annual burden of over 178 million episodes and over 470,000 hospitalizations in the U.S., in particular, in the pediatric world, we know that the mainstay of therapy is oral rehydration solution, uh, you know, stuff that you can buy over the counter at Shoppers Drug Mart, such as Pedialyte, and it's meant to both prevent and treat dehydration. However, the evidence supporting this approach comes mainly from low- and middle-income countries, and it's actually unclear whether it applies to settings where significant dehydration is uncommon. We know that compared to fluids such as juice or milk, these electrolyte solutions are relatively expensive and they actually don't taste great. Refusal to drink these oral solutions have been identified as the most common reason in pediatric emergency departments to provide IV rather than oral rehydration. However, there is a concern that the administration of these solutions, which are actually hypotonic in nature, may lead to water intoxication and acute hyponatremia and all of those complications such as seizure. Okay, so I have to say that those solutions are disgusting. I don't know if you've ever had to have, I mean, I've only had the adult version, so maybe the childhood version is like less gross, but the oral rehydration solutions that you can buy in drugstores is like so disgusting and it makes me just want to drink like a an a, a easily available electrolyte beverage like Gatorade or something 
which is much more palatable. Have you, like, do you not share the same experience? I've actually been fortunate never to try it. Um, and so- Shut up, I, really? No, really. And I've, you know, I guess I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I just, I believe that it works without actually having tried it myself. There's also a belief that these beverages, which are very high in sugar content, so such as apple juice, induces an osmotic diarrhea. And so you really end up chasing your tail. That's why in this study, the investigators wanted to determine whether oral hydration with dilute apple juice is non-inferior to the less tasty uh, and much more expensive electrolyte solutions in children with mild gastroenteritis. Okay, so the sugar load comment makes sense, and I guess in a way maybe explains why it's we're talking about dilute uh, apple juice to maybe reduce the sugar burden. Um, and, uh, and so this is an, an interesting question and certainly maybe a bit of a boon to parents out there if they can demonstrate that, uh, you know, dilute apple juice, which is obviously more palatable, would be just as good. So uh, tell me how the authors uh, and investigators decided to study this question. So what they did was they performed a randomized trial of approximately 650 children that actually was performed out of the hospital for sick children in Toronto. Study participants were children between 6 and 60 months with gastroenteritis and minimal dehydration. They determined this using what's called the Clinical Dehydration Scale, which is a four-item score used to estimate dehydration severity in children with gastroenteritis, and it evaluates things such as a child's general appearance, whether they have sunken eyes, whether they have dry oral mucosa, and the presence or absence of tear formation. Essentially, participants were randomly assigned and provided either color-matched half-strength apple juice or apple-flavored electrolyte maintenance solution in the emergency department. After discharge from the ED, the half-strength apple juice group was permitted to drink their preferred fluid of choice, meaning it could be milk or juice or whatever the parents wanted to provide them. On the other hand, those in the electrolyte solution group had to continue taking the solution. Oh, interesting. And so this was to, to I guess, maybe reinforce a couple of points. Single center study and the kids enrolled in this study had to have very minimal dehydration clinically. Exactly. So looking at the children enrolled in this study, the majority of children had a score of zero on the eight-point scale. Okay, and so what was their outcome of interest? So the primary outcome was a composite that they called treatment failure, and they defined this as either IV rehydration, hospitalization, subsequent unscheduled physician encounter, protracted symptoms, or significant dehydration within seven days of enrollment in the trial. Okay, sounds good. Were there any important exclusion criteria that we didn't cover? So children were excluded if they had a history of chronic gastrointestinal disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease, as well as any other chronic comorbidities that might have biased or influenced the study, such as those with diabetes or inborn errors of metabolism. Furthermore, those that had clinical concern for acute abdomen or those needing immediate IV rehydration were excluded from the population. Okay, yeah, that, that all makes perfect sense. Okay, so tell me what they found. 
So they found that 16.7% of the children who were administered the apple juice experienced treatment failure as compared to 25% of those given the oral maintenance solution. And this finding was statistically significant. So it was not just non-inferior, it was better? Exactly. It was uh, superior. Okay, so what, what do you think about the finding, Janice? Well, I think it's a really neat trial because it really looks at evidence in a pragmatic way. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, it's one of those things which is like the apple juice you drink is better than the oral rehydration solution, which sits on the shelf, I guess. Exactly. So there's that bit, as well as also the the cost related to the oral solution that sits on the shelf. Oh, good point. And so is there a sense, um, or were they able to measure in the study whether the children in the apple juice group actually did have more fluid intake than the other groups? That's actually a good question. It was actually a limitation in the study. They weren't able to measure the amount of fluid being taken, but this actually speaks to the idea of efficacy versus effectiveness, whereby really in real life you aren't able to measure the amount of fluid that children take after you discharge them from hospital. And so really the outcomes were true clinical outcomes without any surrogate intermediate measures. Okay. You mentioned that one of the main reasons that we have sort of encouraged parents and children away from drinking juice or milk in this situation is hypotonicity and also the the complication of the glucose osmotic diarrhea. So what do we know about those outcomes in terms of adverse events? So when the investigators looked at adverse events, they actually found no difference between the two groups. There was actually only one participant in each group that was found to be hyponatremic, and it was actually quite mild, so 133 in one group, 134 in the other. Um, And actually, they weren't able to detect any serious adverse events, such as seizures. In regards to the osmotic diarrhea hypothesis, again, there was no difference in the amount of diarrhea that was reported in each of the groups. Okay. Um, Any important limitations to this study we should think about? Um, You mentioned something about apple juice flavored color matched solutions, but I have a hard time believing that it would be hard to be blinded to which of those solutions you were receiving. Yeah, that's probably one of the big limitations of this study, and that is that parents weren't blinded, obviously, to the therapy that their kids were allocated to. So they knew whether they were giving them the oral solution versus juice or milk. Um, And this may have influenced the actual, you know, quote unquote, threshold for treatment failure between the groups, because let's say a parent took their child home and they didn't want to drink the oral solution, they may have been more likely to take their child back to the emergency department in order to receive IV fluids. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess you could argue it would it, the blinding could work in the opposite direction, which is if you knew you were in the apple juice group, you might fear that it wasn't as good as the other, uh, you know, more pharmaceutical product. Um, and so maybe you would have been more, you know, vigilant about treatment failure. So I guess you could argue it going in, in either direction. Either way, it's a it's a limitation of the study. And probably the other generalizability limitation, I guess, there are, I, I would imagine there are at least two. One would be around the severity of the gastroenteritis, and the other one would be about the resource setting where this could be applied. For sure. So a big uh, 
asterisk that was associated with this study, uh, a caution is that it was conducted in Toronto, so obviously a high income setting. And so it's important not to extrapolate this data to low and middle income environments where there's a much higher risk of gastroenteritis related complications and severe dehydration. Perfect. Okay. Uh, thanks, Janice. That was, a, that was a very interesting foray into pediatrics for you and me. Um, so thanks, thanks for taking us there. My pleasure. So let's change gears. Let's talk about uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So we haven't talked that much about rheumatologic disease on the rounds table, so I'm excited to talk about this study. Uh, it was a paper that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Marcusi and colleagues. Um, I probably didn't pronounce that correctly. Um, and it's about long-term outcomes of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis after 10 years of tight control, which was, it's a basically 10-year follow-up of the BEST study, which was a randomized control trial for patients with rheumatoid arthritis in the Netherlands. And basically, the 10-year study shows that uh, patients with tight control of their rheumatoid arthritis over 10 years achieve quite good clinical and functional outcomes. Uh, and we can get into the details of that. That's, that sounds really interesting. Um, why don't you tell us a bit more about the background on this paper? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, what we know about rheumatoid arthritis has evolved over probably the last 15 or 20 years of research, which is that early and fairly aggressive treatment that targets disease activity is really important for modifying outcomes. We know that we can prevent joint damage and preserve function uh, and reduce symptoms in patients if we are aggressive and, and target a tight control strategy. Probably the most famous study of that was the TICORA study, the Tight Control for Rheumatoid Arthritis study, which was a study of uh, a tight control and therapy versus uh, a no treatment strategy or a more conservative treatment strategy and showed that treatment with a goal of achieving a disease activity score of low um, is superior to routine care. Was that finding considered inflammatory at the time? Oh, that was so bad, Janice. So bad, but so um, good. I think we need to apply tight control to your use of puns. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, yeah, was it controversial or important? Yes. The answer is that it was important. I don't know if it was like controversial, but it, it certainly changed practice and is what guides practice now. Now, one of the interesting things is that this treat-to-target strategy to achieve low disease activity is certainly the standard of care for rheumatoid arthritis, um, but we don't have very good data about long-term outcomes. And so this study is a 10-year follow-up of a randomized control trial that tries to give some additional data about long-term outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis and could be very useful in helping us counsel patients who have early rheumatoid arthritis about uh, their prognosis. Great. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how they went about looking at these 10-year outcomes? Yeah, so this was the best study. It was a randomized control trial in patients who had rheumatoid arthritis in the Netherlands and patients were randomized to four treatment strategies. So all of their treatment groups were targeting a tight control. So this wasn't a question of 
whether tight control was superior. It was a question of what strategy is better to achieve tight control. And so patients could have been randomized to sequential monotherapy strategy, to a different uh, step-up combination therapy strategy, to an initial combination therapy strategy, or to a combination with a biologic agent strategy. Basically, in every group, methotrexate was the starting treatment, which remains today the first-line agent for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And then in the two combination groups, one used various non-biological agents like sulfasalazine and also used prednisone, whereas in the uh, biologic group, it was methotrexate plus infliximab, which is a TNF-alpha inhibitor. The study compared the patients with respect to their clinical radiographic and uh, toxicity outcomes um, over time. Basically, they saw these patients every three months over time and uh, catalog cataloged their disease progression. That sounds to be a very labor-intensive study. Uh, what did they find? Yeah, you can, you know, so they the study was initially, I think, a two-year study, and then they extended it to three, and then five, and now 10 years. So um, certainly these investigators are persistent, if, uh, if not anything else. Um, and so what they found, they enrolled 508 patients initially between 2000 and 2002, and the patients were enrolled with early active rheumatoid arthritis. So the average duration of symptoms for these patients was about six months. Patients were enrolled as long if they met the uh, American College of Rheumatology criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. And what they found, you know, as they followed these patients over 10 years is the first and probably most important limitation of this study is that uh, there was a, a fairly substantial dropout rate. So 195 patients, which is 38% of the initial sample, dropped out. Um, I suppose that's not surprising over a 10-year period. One concern is that the patients who dropped out of the study were initially older at baseline and had higher disease activity scores at baseline. So the people who dropped out didn't look exactly the same as the people who stayed in the study. And so we need to be a little bit cautious about interpreting the results of those who remained in the study and being overly optimistic about uh about outcomes because there was a substantial dropout rate and those people had more severe disease activity at baseline. Now, what's encouraging is that, so the average follow-up for those people who dropped out was four and a half years. So we still have pretty good evidence and, and pretty good follow-up for, those pe for the, the people who dropped out. And 77% of the people who dropped out achieved disease remission. So, you know, the the main analytic issues in this paper are around trying to conduct extra analyses and adjust for all of this dropout rate. And I think what we can, the main, before we get to the main conclusions of the study and the main findings, I think what we can say about the paper is that one of the limitations of the study is the dropout rate. The investigators did as much as they could with statistical methods um, to mitigate the effect of that dropout rate on the overall study conclusions and findings. And so probably we can trust the results of the study, but we should take it with a slight grain of salt that you know uh, the outcomes might be a little bit worse than what we're seeing in the study. Okay, so having said that, let me tell you what they actually found. The key finding is that after one year of treatment, the initial combination therapy groups 
the people who received either steroids and multiple disease modifying agents or the biologic agent achieved remission earlier than the other groups and achieved uh, a little bit lower disease activity earlier. However, when you continue following those groups, all of the strategies end up being equal. So you have similar levels of disease activity in all four groups over the subsequent two to 10 years. And was this measured using both radiographic data as well as reported functional outcomes? Yeah, so they used a few different measures. So they used the disease activity scale, so a standardized patient questionnaire. Uh, they used uh, the health activity questionnaire um, for function. And then they used um, radiographic evidence as well. And so what they found was that uh, 80 to 85% of patients at 10 years achieved a low disease activity score. So that's quite good. And interestingly, about 50% of patients achieved complete remission of disease. So they had no symptoms and many of them could even come off medications entirely. Wow. So if nothing else, one of the takeaways that I might um, gather from this study is that at 10 years, individuals who meet inclusion criteria of this study with rheumatoid arthritis generally have pretty good outcomes. That's right. So key that your point about meeting inclusion criteria is very important. So the, the key criteria were that um, they had early onset of disease, they met the criteria for RA, and then there were some exclusion criteria that are important. So they this was a relatively healthy population. They excluded uh, major comorbid disease. So it was really patients who had pretty much pure rheumatoid arthritis. They also include patients who had severe disease. So you could have had high levels of rheumatoid factor, high levels of anti-CCP, erosive disease on x-ray. About 90% of these patients had erosive changes on, uh, on their radiographic imaging initially, but, um, but they did exclude the more multi-morbid patient populations. So I'm curious to know whether there was any difference in side effects between each of the different treatment strategies. Good question. So the answer is no, there weren't. Um, over a 10-year course, about 90% of patients reported some adverse event. Now, you know, how much this is related to the disease can be, or the treatment can be questioned. Um, the most common adverse events were some type of infection, urinary tract infection, pneumonia, that kind of thing. But there was no difference across treatment strategies. One of the key analyses that they presented was around mortality. So 72 patients in the study, which is just more than, I have to do math. What's 72 divided by 500? Just more than 10%, 15%? Yeah. So 15% uh, of the patients died before the end of the 10-year follow-up. Um, and the mean age of death was 75 years. And what they found with mortality is that there is no difference between the strategies and no difference when compared to the general population. Now, you know, your confidence intervals are wide because you have pretty uh, small sample size when it comes to mortality. Um, but that was the findings around mortality. They did find that there were certain predictors of mortality uh, according to baseline characteristics and predictors of uh, uh, disease activity as well. So... The baseline patient population was young, I mentioned, 54 years, 
and mostly women, which is like in keeping with rheumatoid arthritis, so 85% female. I mentioned that it was early, so six months of symptoms, and that about 80 to 90% had erosive disease. So that's what your baseline patient population looked like. The people who did worse were older, those who were men, those who smoked, and those who had a higher baseline disease activity uh, were associated with an increased risk of, of mortality. Interestingly, having high antibody titers is not associated with mortality. So rheumatoid factor or any other antibody titers? So yeah, specifically rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP. Got it. I guess my last question pertains to applicability in uh, today's state of practice, but oftentimes in these trials where you look at outcomes 10 years later, sometimes the standard of care has changed. Would you say that this is still currently applicable to how we treat rheumatoid arthritis now? Yeah, that's a great question. There are many new, a number of new agents to treat rheumatoid arthritis, new biologic drugs. But most patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and again, neither you or I are rheumatologists, uh, but um, you know, to my knowledge, most patients currently with rheumatoid arthritis are still treated with non-biologic disease-modifying agents, and methotrexate is still the first line of therapy. Um, and so the treatment strategies that are presented in this study are absolutely relevant to today's management of rheumatoid arthritis. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that really interesting paper with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about rheumatology. And full disclosure, I'm currently doing a month of rheumatology clinics, so it's not a total coincidence. Okay, Janice, it's time for my favorite part of all our episodes, which is the good stuff segment. Tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. So what really caught my attention this week was a perspective piece written in Gem Internal Medicine in April, and it quotes Hippocrates. The title is, To Cure Sometimes, To Relieve Often, To Comfort Always. But it's a very short piece written by an internist from Stanford, and it talks about his management of a patient that we often see uh, in our daily practice, which is um, you know, a 77-year-old man who has a known history of coronary artery disease and his umpteenth presentation of chest pain. And essentially, it goes through the process of speaking to patients about their own goals of care and really reorienting treatment-based guidelines with patient-centered preferences. And it really tells a nice story of realigning a practitioner's goals with a patient's ones in order to achieve comfort always. I'd highly recommend it. Oh, thanks, Janice. That's a great recommendation. And I love that phrase. I want to recommend an article that I thought was uh, really compelling and interesting in the New Yorker. And again, some personal bias uh, written by um, an acquaintance of mine. Um, so the article is called The Forgotten Lessons of the American Eugenics Movement, uh, written by Andrea Den Hood. And so this is a really fascinating story of Carrie Buck, who is a young woman who was born in 1906 in Virginia. And Carrie was raised initially by her mother who uh, was impoverished, and she was ultimately taken in by a wealthy family. 
She became pregnant and she said that she was raped by the nephew of the wealthy family that was looking after her. And so the wealthy family moved to have her committed to a colony for uh, the mentally feeble, what was called the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, even though there was no prior evidence that she was indeed uh, of what they described as low intelligence. So she was admitted to this institution, and uh, they did a variety of tests, etc. And ultimately, uh, the institution moved to have her sterilized because she was declared a moron, a middle-grade moron, which was a technical designation based on IQ. And it was, interestingly, relatively high on the intelligence scale because the lower classifications were idiot and imbecile. Um, and so ultimately, she it ended up being a very contentious topic, obviously, over whether this woman could be sterilized. And she fought the case in court, and it came to become the center of a Supreme Court case. And in an eight to one decision, the Supreme Court made forced sterilization for eugenic purposes legal in the United States. And so this article goes on to describe the history of the eugenics movement of forced sterilization. And it describes a book called Imbeciles, the Supreme Court American Eugenics and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. Uh, which gives a detailed account of this whole story. And the most shocking thing in this article is the fact that the law, Buck versus Bell, is still active in some cases. It was recently cited as precedent as recently as 2001 in court. And forced or coercive sterilizations have not completely gone away. In 2013, the American Center for Investigative Reporting revealed that at least 148 female prisoners in California were sterilized without proper permission between 2006 and 2010. And last year, a district attorney in Nashville was fired for including sterilization in requirements for certain plea deals. Um, so it raises a really fascinating and controversial history around eugenics and sterilization, uh, and I thought it was a great read. Wow. I'm not going to lie. My initial uh, instinct when I heard you tell that story was that it sounded very shocking and in some ways hard to believe in today's day and age, but certainly sounds like a chilling read that uh, I will read. Okay, I agree. Totally shocking. Uh, thanks, Janice. It was a pleasure to speak with you as always, and I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks so much. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.